Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And welcome to Rule of Three, a podcast about comedy. I'm Joel Morris. I'm Jason Hazley. And as usual, we're joined by someone who makes comedy to talk about something funny that they love. By taking it apart, maybe we'll learn something about how comedy works, or we'll just quote bits from it and giggle until we're finished. Both approaches are valid. Our special guest today is the multi-award winning Josh Weinstein. Hi, Josh. Hi. Hello. (laughs) Josh has come the furthest distance to any of this podcast. We've not had anyone from... uh... Los Angeles before. Yeah, and I hate the fact that I sound I'm I'm from LA. Oh. Not, I grew up I grew up on the East Coast in Washington DC. I'm not from LA, but that's I've lived there for twenty five years, so now you have to say that simply now I am. It's terrible. You've been I naturalized. Hate, I hate it. I hate it there and I love it here, which is the reason I'm here <laughs> is I'm on vacation to I had to get away from LA. Yeah, you see what well, last time I saw you I was in California this time last yeah. year and I think we should start a house swap because I can happily go in California I will, for a I will of gladly weeks. I will live in this office. Right? I would so <laughs> and just when I walk out and it's cold and rainy it makes me really happy. Really? And you can you come have, to get away from the sunshine. Yeah. I loved it for the first 10 years, but after 25 years, no wait. It's 28 years now that I've lived there and it's just a steady 72 degrees all the time. And that's what everybody there is too, is just a 70 degrees, just like neither too hot or too cold. And it's really tiresome. Someone said so. that. What you have in Europe is weather. Yeah. Doesn't yeah. It? You have weather. So like, I, I remember the, one of the first times, because we worked on this show, we all worked together on Strange Show High. Mm, yeah. And it was filmed up in Manchester yeah. and uh, in, in a smaller town, Altrincham. And I remember the first, the very first week I was there and I was walking and it was hailing, but it was hailing horizontally because there was a wind. <laughs> and it's just blowing in my face and I was never happier. <laughs> so that's... 
you, you've come so, up, so you've come over to the, to the UK uh, solo on your own just to take trains to cold places. Yes, that's because <laughs> this I is t- your holiday. I told my wife like I real I like really need a break, and it's like I want to take a train to Scotland and to other cold places. And she was like, "You go ahead and have a good time, and I'll stay here." It was really nice to to meet someone who's just so relentlessly nice about the slightly boring country we were from. But that's it's. I think it's always op- the opposite because. Every like British comedy writer that I meet, a British writer wants to come to LA. I'm like, Don't, well, please come, but like, go ahead because like, I think we fetishize British comedy, and like, if you speak to a lot of American comedy writers, or at least yeah. from like my generation, it's like that's that's the best comedy, that's the the funniest stuff is really? from England. Yeah, it seems incredibly strange because especially over here, especially with the the boom of things like Netflix and stuff, and and the, the accessibility, increased accessibility to really top grade American comedy, which is blown up. Certainly, as, as kids, we didn't see much American comedy. It was what was on TV. You had to seek it out a bit. You had sort of four or five sitcoms that were on or whatever. Yeah, that's very exactly similar to us. So you like, only saw grow- the best stuff. Yeah, like <laughs> growing up in the seventies and eighties as an American kid. Like, well, first of all, you get like Doctor Who yeah. on on PBS, which was the public channel. So yeah. like weird, weird nerdy kids like me were like, what. What the hell is this? Why haven't they spent any money on it? <laughs> I know. But then also like Monty Python. That was on public TV too. Like in the 70s. Was it done as a public service? I don't, to yeah. Educate to Americans, educate young <laughs> Americans about good comedy. Because Ameri- to me, American comedy really, except for a few assorted things, really kind of sucked through the 90s. The first American comedy I was aware of seeing on British TV was MASH. And yeah. when I was very young, I didn't really get it. Oh, I didn't either. Because it's in it's in a key which you only appreciate when you're much older. It, I've never seen it as an older person, and Have I'm old now, because I hated it as a kid. Really? And I didn't like, what I didn't like too was like, when they were in the operating unit, suddenly there was no laugh track. Oh, and it was over like, here, it yeah. was shown with no laugh track. Oh, really? See, that's So it felt like a, a, a very, very modern, what, well, you look at it now, it's like a very, very modern oh, laugh track. that's interesting, thing. because so they must have sweetened it yeah. for Americans who need to know when to laugh. Even as a kid, I was like, this seems kind of like it's creepy. Pom- yeah, creepy and pompous yeah. and like annoying. And I also didn't like this. People kill me for this, but I hate the Marx Brothers. Oh, right. And, just... and so, wow. and because Arnaldo was like always like Groucho, yeah. Mr. Groucho, like it made me really mad. I have, we have big discussions back, back in LA, back at work, like because I hate. I hate the Marx Brothers and I hate Charlie Chaplin, and so it makes other comedy people really mad. And I know I don't know from your looks wow. how you feel I must about admit, I'm Chaplin, not a huge. But, but, I, I but, like the people who've been influenced by them more than I like them. I find the Marx Brothers, I think, are great. I don't think I've ever sat through a whole Marx Brothers film. I, I think quite, it's just it's quite tiring. It, it is. It's also. <laughs> it's also. Groucho, Groucho's an asshole. And, and he's just like, he's not like a nice, I think I like friendlier comedy people. Yeah. Because like thinking about it, like like Stan Laurel's one of my heroes. Yes. Yeah. And you just read about him and you know he was like a nice guy. I'm a Laurel and Hardy person. Yeah. And Chaplin, I just find he's maudlin. And I'm sure like I'm speaking somewhat ignorantly. Like if I went back and actually watched Modern Times, which people are, like I say, mm. I say to people, I hate Chaplin. They go, what about Modern Times? If you watch like to me, like Harold Lloyd or Buster Keaton are, are brilliant, yeah, beautifully thought out. And Stan Laurel and Lauren Hardy, brilliantly thought out comedy that's also delightful. We so. could just do Lauren and Hardy, but we yeah. shouldn't do it. Um, oh, yeah. I tell you what, the second comedy that, that I remember seeing, American comedy and British TV though, was the one that made the fucking enormous difference it was like a bomb going off and that was cheers that was when we were similar to you guys i my my best friend in high school bill oakley and i have been 
partners on and off for a long time. And then we split up like 10 years ago, but now we're back to we're working together on this show and it's delightful. Um, but when we were just starting out in the, it was really like the late 80s, early 90s, and Cheers was like one the big yeah. show. Yeah. And like we didn't write a, a Cheers spec script, but that was sort of like, if you could get a job on Cheers, that that was the ne plus ultra. That, yeah, yeah. that turned up on British television shortly after the one I went mad for was Taxi. Uh, yeah, 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 for, yeah, which cool. Cheers felt like Taxi two point They 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 yeah. worked out to that big uh, preset. It was all it was very yeah. There's Lots all the similar of, ilk, very intelligently written and and acted and and that was the exception really in American sitcoms at the time. It gave like, us a false impression, I think, of how clever problem, American sitcom it, was. Because the, most of them, like in the late 80s and 90s, were especially stupid. Really? And like, just really like, like I'm too close for comfort and just like really cheesy. Like, and like, I like lowbrow stupid comedy a lot. They, these were just bad. So that Cheers was really like the exception. There was a feeling as well when you, some, when you see the stuff we didn't really get to see and you see people, especially when you see people pastiching it, which is usually the way we found out about what American culture was like, was you'd watch a pastiche on something cleverer and you'd go, oh, is that what an American sitcom was? a standard American sitcom was like, like the Too Many Cooks parody that yeah. they did for, for Adult Swim. And you went, oh, yeah. God. <laughs> that was, that that was what they were like. Sensational, <laughs> that was fucking sensational. That but, just kept going and going. It takes a lot to make a stew. A pinch of salt and laughter too. A scoop of kids to add the spice. A dash of love to make it nice. And you got Too Many Cooks. Too Many Cooks. Too Many Cooks. It's amazing. Well, I imagine yeah. that I mean, if there's a point to that parody, it's that it probably, I imagine, felt like that if you were watching those sitcoms, that they just wouldn't stop. Yeah, and they were aimed like a sausage machine that just kept producing more and more adequate. See, that's why that's why I think people from my generation tended towards British comedy because as opposed to a sausage factory which it seemed like in America, it British comedy felt like craftsmen yeah. in their in their little cottages make six making them. yeah, making small hand batch comedy that was like lovingly <laughs> just some some weirdo <laughs> in a cottage made and it was brilliant as like little little finely crafted gifts as opposed to plastic crap spewed yeah, out yeah. of the butt of Hollywood. Yeah. yeah. You, know. you wrote a spec script for Seinfeld, didn't you? Yeah. First we, we wow. wrote our very first spec for a show called Night Court. Do you no. even know? No, it was took took place in a night court, but it was <laughs> but it was really funny. It was like there were some sitcoms that were just well crafted, but there there are few of them. Um, so we wrote a night court spec and didn't get anything from it. We also we got a new agent, and the new agent told us you have to write something a spec you really love for a show you really love. Because when we did Night Court, we were still in university, and it was like this seems like an average sitcom. Let's write that. Right. And the yeah. agent actually gave us good advice and said, write something you really love. And at the time, Seinfeld had just been on a, for a few episodes. And we're like, we really like the show. And so we wrote a spec of that. And then, and because we really loved it, so better ideas poured forth in it. And then that got us some attention. That, That's good advice, though, because I think that one of the things that we 
often when we're sort of dealing with with people sort of asking us for advice and sort of what should you do and the answer is for god's sake don't give any time over to something you don't love oh yeah because you'll do it badly yeah and never i think yeah it's really good advice because also we always knew we wanted to be writers since we were in yeah. high school you did but the same thing as we, you started th- doing the same thing as we did i you think did we were the college real, magazine didn't yeah you? i think we were really similar with the school Bill magazine. And I, yeah <laughs> that we we did we started a, a humor magazine in our high school same as us we went to the a, a, what's called a prep school yeah. in America so it was like it was on the grounds of the Washington Cathedral very like for America it was like old line yeah. it started 20 years old yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was like it was like 80 years old the school started like in 1906 and Bill and I started a humor magazine because we at the time like we had been exposed to National Lampoon yep. yeah. which is probably the, the first big brilliant influence on us and I think people of, yeah. our, of our age. And the, the thing about National Lampoon, I, I, we didn't get National Lampoon over here. We got the movies rather than the... So it was a name and probably the Hobbit pastiche. But that's a really good transatlantic product because it's British and American comedians working. It's Tony Hendra and people like that. Yeah. It's a really... And Tony Hendra coming from the same background as the Pythons. There's an injection of sort of Python sensibility into American college humour. Yeah, because those, and those guys at that time loved Python too, but it was a really good coming together of things. And the only re- reason we knew about National Lampoon is because Bill had an older brother who grew up in like the 60s and 70s, and he had a stash of National Lampoon <laughs> magazines in the mm. attic that Bill found. And he was like... And then he showed me, and he was like, you got to look at these and it so it was like there's a there's a, a, a running theme in it in a lot of this which is like kind of contraband information have you seen the latest information smuggled out a bit like when sort of john lennon's getting uh, 12 inches of rock and roll on the liverpool docks that i remember getting mad magazines from uh seaside shops and i went and stayed at the british seaside mad magazines would be used as ballast in ships wow. so they'd sell them in the, the campsite shops. It, it's so much i think so much of the appeal of comedy is that it's illicitness and forbiddenness because <laughs> that's what com- part of comedy yeah. but it is because i know it's always like hey have you seen like when i'm talking about comedy or it's like hey have you seen garth Marenghi's dark place it's like another one that people talk about in kind and of like hushed tones it. and it's like i have a dvd of it <laughs> i could give it to you at a party and if you return it to me, it'd be great. but it's like it is like it's it's spoken in a hushed, precious terms. That's delightful. Yeah. But that is so. We started we started the humor magazine in our high school, and the headmaster wanted to shut it down because it's like this is like you're going to make fun of people, blah blah blah. It but, helps to be in an institution that's a bit stuffy. Yeah, like exactly. That. And we hated our headmaster, and because he was really uptight. And the the rest of the school, it was a church school, and it was very. It had a very nice feel to it, except for the headmaster, who was really uptight. And he wanted to shut it down. But then what it hap- ended up is that all the teachers and people wanted to be mentioned in the magazine because uh-huh. it was a, a sign yeah, of popularity yeah. or whatever, if you were made fun of. We, so we started that magazine, and then it existed for a couple of years after we left and then died out. We were given access to the means of production. Um, we ended up typing up the school newsletter. And so we just did a parody one, you know, within a couple of weeks of being being allowed in the computer room. So the this That's newsletter so came out. Similar you know, in fact, we, st- and we And our headmaster, actually, he cut some slack. He called me in and shut the door of his office and said, right, this is me bollocking you. And then he said, the thing is, it's very funny. <laughs> he That's was a great, great. He was a That's great, was a great Python fan. We then had a conversation wow. about comedy. And he said, one of the funniest things I've ever seen, I went to see Python live <laughs> at Drury Lane um, in 1976, probably something like that. And he said, the last thing they did after they did the final curtain call, the curtain came down 
and they projected onto the curtains the words piss off home. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was an illicit thing, you know. The headmaster's not really allowed to say piss off to one of his pupils. That's but it, such it a great, kind of, oh, we're in a comedy blessing. club. And to, oh, speaking about Monty Python and, and nice comedy too, is another one of my heroes is Michael Palin. Yeah. And again, you just get a feeling that he's a wonderful soul. There's a warmth and, there. And, I mean, and that's, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, the, the, and, the yeah. show obviously that you end up writing for, you don't end up writing for Seinfeld, but you end up being invited into the Simpsons writer's room. Yeah. By the time you join them the Simpsons has set a bar which has probably never been matched for incredible warmth and savagery at the same time Yeah, and that's one thing that people, some people didn't get and why it caused outrage and Bart Simpson's shirts were banned. It's such a different <laughs> era if you look at now. Yeah. It's like Donald Trump is like a horrible version of Bart Simpson without the intelligence, <laughs> but he's the president. But at the time, people, ba- schools banned Simpson shirts because he was saying, eat my shorts, which isn't even funny, but it was just like, it was considered outrageous. But really what the, the truth was, and I think what the reason the show was so popular is because there was a heart. And that was a yeah. rule in writing too, is that no matter what happens, the characters always love each other. And so there was always like an essential sweetness to it when it's done right. It managed to balance sweetness without sentiment, which is a really hard thing because there's a tendency, yeah. especially if you that George Bush comment saying be more like the Waltons, less like the Simpsons, yeah. without realising the Simpsons are like the Waltons. It, there's an incredible family values, a, a core of morality to it. All the families in the Simpsons love each other, even when you're taking the piss out of the Flanderses. They become a way of saying everything mean you want to about evangelism. But there's no doubt that they love each other. Yeah, and I think it's... And even, like, the Wiggums love each other. And Chief Wiggum loves Ralph. And so there's, yeah, there's an essential sweetness to it. But when we started, the Simpsons writers, before we started, they were sort of like the National Lampoon editors to us. It was the pantheon of comedy writing gods. So we were very much in awe and very nervous and amazed that we had gotten hired. When were you when were you brought in? We were brought in in season three at kind of at the tail end. Like we really like maybe I have one joke in an episode. (laughs) Like we were it was the tail end of season three. And it was only because we had written a, a freelance episode because in American TV by the Writers Guild rules, even though Simpsons wasn't in the Writers Guild at the time, is you need to give out two outside scripts to freelance writers to help bring in oh, new right. people. Wow. So which a is a, that's system. a very nice proviso. That's great. And so and that still exists in all shows. If they did it on British shows, that would mean the writer got to write four shows. <laughs> yeah, which should be half script- half the season, half <laughs> there the series. Scripts yeah. to give any away. Yeah, yeah but in American <laughs> on sitcom and with Simpsons, there's twenty six episodes yeah. a year and so you need the extra writers. That's great. Yeah. But the only reason we got hired after that is because there was the first team. There's a te- one team on The Simpsons and they were leaving. And we happened, and Bill and I, we had to jump back a little bit. We had gone out to LA to work on a show that was like a variety show. And we we're like, we moved from New York. We had been in New York for a year working in cable comedy. And we're like, this is going to be our big break. We're going to Hollywood. <laughs> and we got there and the show was canceled within like a month. And so they hired a bunch of really funny, smart people to do this variety show and everything went wrong about it and was canceled. And then we were unemployed for a year and we were literally on unemployment and that had run out. And Bill was going to take the foreign service exam and we were like, we're probably going to go, I guess we'll move back to Washington, D.C. and have to get jobs there. Like we were really... Career stalled at the first stage. Yeah. At the most exciting stage, we're like, we finally made it and then nothing 
and it was really hard to break in for any job. And that's that was at the time where I said when we got a new agent, our new agent said, well, you've got to write something you love. And then with our Simpsons freelance and that, that got us the attention of the Simpsons showrunners. And it so happened that there was a, a team of writers, Jay Kogan, Wally Waladarski, and they were like the sort of the first people to leave the Simpsons. And we had our agent, we had got an offer on another job on a more mainstream sitcom. And we said to our agent, just call the Simpsons, just see if yeah. they have a slot. And it so happened that Jay and Wally were leaving. And Whoa. they're like, we have a slot just for timing. a team of writers. And writing teams are not that common in LA. And so we got hired and we were in awe because it was our favorite show of all How time. How was that first day? It was really, I still remember like the lunch order that, and I ordered like a chicken salad sandwich. And I still remember it, but, but I was so nervous I could barely eat it. And we were <laughs> plonked into the center of the pantheon of comedy writing gods. I think it How was big like, was the room? It's not very big by American standards. I think it was like around like eight other writers. Right. And it's it very intimate and it's like delightfully run down room <laughs> on the Fox lot. Like, like old sofas. And there was also, remember at the time, Simpsons and Butterfinger Candy had a big partnership. <laughs> Get a crispity, crunchity, peanut buttery burst in every bite of Butterfinger. Nobody mm. better lay a finger on my Butterfinger. <laughs> And so Simpsons got Simpsons rarely got free stuff. Like other sitcoms like Seinfeld, they got free like sneakers and stuff. I remember wow. we were always trying to get free stuff for the Simpsons and we never did. I suppose because the characters can't wear them on screen. I guess that's true. They can't. <laughs> the only thing free we ever got was acne medicine. <laughs> yeah, this is true because I forget. What? You know there's Why? the you know in the Simpsons there's the squeaky voice team. Yeah, oh, I'm yeah. sorry, sir, I can't help yeah. you, that guy. And so and I think there was something, some joke about his acne and, and he said like Oh, I'm in pizza face heaven or something like that and I can't remember what I think it was either Clearasil or some acne medicine sent us a, a crate of acne medicine going like now you can be in pizza face heaven and that was the only free thing we ever got on the Simpsons and like we tried like Bill and I tried writing products in this is like a, a stupid commercial and then the family starts singing the song for chicken tonight yep. which was a product yep. like yep. it's not even a product we wanted but we like let's mention it and maybe we'll get some chicken tonight and we didn't. Doesn't this family know any songs that aren't commercials? I feel like chicken tonight. So we gave up on that. Like on some like shows, I don't know if it's, but like we heard like how like head actor of a show bought all the writers' cars. Yo. They're like other sitcoms got amazing freebies and well, we got is, we got not, nothing oh and it was just going back to this yeah. point of like this is the simpsons so which is like really well at the time yeah that like this was the simpsons was really popular and and anybody who was writing is like oh my god this is a dream job but it's in a delightfully like rundown room with old sofas <laughs> and it was at the time where smoking was still allowed inside yeah. um so everyone's smoking and eating so, butterfingers off crap so oh that's a butterfingers <laughs> back to the butterfingers so we got a lot of free it's a new product that only lasted a little while called butterfingers bb which were little balls of Butterfinger. Right. <laughs> and they were the problem was like when you condense a regular Butterfinger bar, it's long enough that the crunchy, chewy stuff is is spread out. But Butterfinger's BBs are super condensed Butterfinger's atoms. They're hard to chew and, and they're really sticky. Somebody 
out of boredom because you know when you're in a rewrite room, it's not yeah, yeah. it's not all yakety yak no. hilarity and like in fact there's long periods of silence and boredom. And so out of boredom, someone had mushed together all these Butterfinger BBs into a mass and had put them on a ceiling. And this massive old candy was on the ceiling for years. It was there the whole time we were there. And I don't know if it still is. And they're still in that rewrite room. And so, for example, also Schwarzwelder, who was a, a nonstop chain smoker. And in fact, he had his shirt with two pockets, specifically so he could have a pack of Lucky Strikes Whoa. in each Whoa. pocket. Because he was getting through 40 a day. Yeah. So they had, a, they had one of those um, ashtrays with a little fan. Yeah, and he would say, and I think if you look at the Simpsons episode, the front, where every year there was a, an episode where you could write yourself in as writers. Yeah. When he did an itchy and scratchy episode, the oh, itchy yeah. and scratchy writers are the Simpsons writers. So if you look at the episode, the front, they drew the Simpsons room as it was, like sort of right before we started. And Schwarzwelder has his special chair with his little ashtray, wow. so he can smoke. But that's what the room that we were plonked into. But these were the most brilliant writers we'd ever read. I mean, we, before we started a show, I remember when we were in New York and I just found my VHS tapes the other day. It's like we would obsessively tape The Simpsons to watch over and over again. Yeah. So we knew and idolized all these writers. Mm. So to be plunked in with them was very intimidating, except the great thing is it's such a democratic room that it didn't matter. And that's what we were taught some valuable lessons when we first started. On our first day, or at least the first week, we were, we were sat down with uh, the showrunners, Al Jean and Mike Reese, and Al Jean's still running the show now. They told us there's some rules of the rewrite room, and those are rules that we took with us and have applied forever. And anyone who ever worked on The Simpsons has sort of taken these rules yeah. with them, including like Greg Daniels, who's done shows like The American Office and mm. Parks and Recreation. And he applied the same rules to his writers and they seem to work really well, which are among them, like you never say no yeah. to an idea. Yep. You never say, I don't like that idea if it's you know somebody else's idea. And if you, if you don't like it or you don't like a joke pitch, never be negative about it. Either stay quiet or pitch a better alternative. And it's like that allows a much... Talking about gentle comedy, yeah. it's like it's such a welcoming room. It's yeah, 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 yeah. And it's all, it doesn't matter who said the best idea or best joke, or even if it comes from a writer's assistant or somebody on staff, if it's the best joke or best idea, yeah. it goes in a show. Yeah. And that's so wonderfully democratic. And we've heard about other American shows that aren't like that. You hear like about Saturday Night Live is very cutthroat. Mm. And people are actively trying to kill other people's sketches so they could get their own sketch on that Saturday night. But The Simpsons was the opposite. And I think that was also because of when it was started by Matt Groening, Jim Brooks, and Sam Simon. Sam Simon had come from the world of sitcoms and talking about Taxi. He had been on Taxi right. when he was very right out of college. Hmm. And so I think he sort of created the writing aesthetic that he wanted as a reaction to the more cutthroat sitcom world. So it was very collegiate and very gentle and very warm. So after a while you started to feel comfortable. And like, I remember like the first time I pitched a joke and then it got a laugh from Sam Simon. I was like, phew, I'm not going to get... How many days was that in that you that opened was, your mouth? <laughs> I think that was weeks in. Whoa. But I mean, I think it was comfortable enough that we started to feel comfortable you could pitch. Right. But the first jokes, laugh. But it was still, yeah, yeah it was the first yeah. laugh I think probably yeah, it really took makes a difference. I mean, we, we, we've done both sorts of room and you really felt, mainly we've done the, the collegiate friendly room. Most people we work for are nice. It's nice. But occasionally due to just circumstances, you're working in a room, even a British-sized writer's room, where there's a lot of no, because people are nervous or anxious or whatever. And you really feel it. Uh, it Robert, really it destroys the atmosphere as well. Robert Webb it? said to us yeah. once, he said, his job, if it's his show, he said, if I'm running the room, he said, it's a party. Everyone's got to have a good time. We've got to put some food in there. And the point is, I don't spoil anyone's time. 
I'll only open my mouth to criticise what you've done if I've got a better idea. And you go, that's just such a nice, simple rule. Right, yeah, and it's great. And another rule that goes along with that is there are no bad ideas. There are no mm. bad pitches because you never know. So many of the most brilliant things on a Simpsons started from some from a bad pitch or right. a bad mm. idea, but you don't know. Like, that could feed somebody else an idea. Don't shoot down ideas. It was heaven. And we were so sheltered that we didn't know that because when you go, it's like leaving college or university for the first time (laughs) and you're so idealistic and then you go out in the real world and you go, oh my God, this, it sucks. The Simpsons was like this isolated comedy laboratory where anything goes and it was very welcoming. And so it was just a really lovely place to work. Why do you think that happened? Is it because Fox didn't know how it was working yes and they weren't allowed in that's the really the biggest reason (laughs) is when the simpsons was sold and jim brooks and matt and sam simon sold it at the time fox network was just starting out and so they desperately wanted material and shows and also jim brooks was very powerful at the time as a big movie director yeah and so he had a lot of power and said we'll do the show for you but you can't give us notes and they were like okay Because they were ignorant. They didn't know. So they literally were not allowed to interfere with the show. In fact, we were, when we were running the show and we were friendly with a young executive, we actually had to smuggle him into the table read because Fox was not allowed to even come to the table reads. Wow. So they could. And they never rode back on that, Fox. Fox No, they were never allowed to. It was either contracted (laughs) or like a verbal agreement that was honored. So they weren't. So like, for example, when we were running the show twice a year, we would meet with the president of Fox and say, this is what we're planning and just as a courtesy. And in fact, from one of those meetings, President Fox was they would try to pitch ideas and one of them was like that they during a meeting was like we could really maybe we could have a new family member maybe like a young family <laughs> member and we're like you can't suddenly introduce a new person in family but that gave help give rise to the Poochie episode oh, was, which, which was based which was based all about writing TV no no, no. he was supposed to have attitude can we put him in more of a hip-hop context? Forget context. He's got to be a surfer. I feel we should rostify him by 10% or so. But because they weren't... They just, they were not allowed to interfere. So it was really such a, it was a rare thing. Like you don't realize until you leave The Simpsons how rare that is when you go out and work on another show or try to sell shows, like how involved executives are and how much they want to be involved. But we don't know that working on The Simpsons. It's just an isolated It seems strange that that when something is critical and commercial success by using this method, that usually what people do is they steal the method. And it's so rare that anyone goes... It took it took 20 years because it's only now Netflix gets it because they are like, we're hiring you because we like what you've done. So go do what you do and we won't interfere. And they're like, they're lovely to work for because of that. And I'm also plugging them because yeah. they're funding oh, our show. Yeah. But they are, but they're, they really are lovely. And it's like when they have suggestions, it's just like, we just, we love this, but here's a, it's a suggestion. You can take it or leave it. And they're almost really always well thought out, but it's only in the last few years. So no one ever like, because I, executives, no one had any idea how the Simpsons worked. And that's yeah. like only the people in the writer's room really understood how it worked. Is that a reason to keep the writer's room as revolting as possible to stop execs coming in? I probably is because it's a people, <laughs> if you walked into that room 
at least in the nineties. I haven't been there. I haven't been in the room in a number of years, but it was really run down. It's literally the the building. It looks like an old motel, and I believe it was seriously <laughs> like used as a motel set, like right. in the fifties wow. and sixties. Um, and it's ironically it's called the New Writers Building, even though it's really run down because mm-hmm. there's a p- building on a Fox lot about a hundred yards from it called the Old Writers Building, which was actually featured in a Laurel and Hardy movie. That That's a really old, beautiful old building from the twenties. But the Simpsons Building, it's just run down and and the the rewrite room literally had a screen door that creaked open it really felt like going to a hut that's so, great though so I but think... it does again it gives you a great homey feel yeah like yeah you can just sit around yeah. and, and talk selling a little or a lot Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection. Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So once you were comfortable in there and you'd, you'd pitched some jokes and done some scripts and things, there was a, a system of sort of a hierarchy within there that you would get promoted and you eventually ended up show running during season seven, seven and eight. Yeah. yeah. And it's, yeah. So on The Simpsons, though, again, with a democracy in writing, each season you'd get promoted up another rank. We started as story editors and we thought that being a story editor would be a real job. Yeah. yeah. And we're like, oh my God, we're going to be editing Jim Brooks's scripts. And like, we didn't <laughs> know what it was just a p- title. Oh, it's is just, it right? It's a the story editor in, in American sitcoms. So like, you just sit there and you pitch. But it's like, we thought we would be editing stories. And, so what and are the ranks then? The ranks are staff writer 
is the lowest ranking. And then story editor, then co-producer, then producer, then supervising producer, then co-executive producer, and then executive producer. And then vice admiral. And then vice admiral yeah, yeah. And, and, and dreaded rear admiral. <laughs> and, so, so we really like, we just kind of rose up over the years and we're also, we're again the victims of luck. We're originally... <laughs> Conan O'Brien was going to run the show. Wow. Is he, when we started at the end of the third season, he was the other new guy. Like wow. he had just been there like eight months before us. And so Conan was really slated to be the guy to run the show because he was brilliant. Yeah. Like every day in the rewrite room, it was like a 10 hour Conan show. Because as you know, like most writers are kind of like quiet, yeah. nerdy people, but Conan is Conan is Conan, yeah. and he's yeah. delightful, and also again really warm, like really nice guy, but hilarious, and he was always on. So like a lot of times, like out of boredom, people would literally just look look at Conan, and then he'd do something funny. <laughs> and so so and but he also was a brilliant writer. It was really like clear, like he should be the guy who should run the show next. But that's right when he got his own show. Right. So, right. so between seasons four and five, all the writers left, including the showrunners, people felt like we've done The Simpsons, let's go on and create our own yeah. show or whatever. Yeah. So everyone had left but the four of us new guys and there was no one running the show so there's this weird period of the simpsons that was maybe like three or four months where we didn't have a showrunner and it was just me bill conan and this writer dan mcgrath who's also brilliant and we were just like for four months we were like i guess we should think of some episodes let's go get ice cream and think of episodes or let's go to malibu and think of episodes or let's go to the mall and walk around and, and think about episodes but even this is before conan was known yeah. We went to like the mall and we'd walk around and Conan would go up to people and go, hi, I'm Conan O'Brien. Wow. Because he always wanted his own show. That's what he wanted from the beginning. So it was like, it's delightful to be in a room that's often quiet and have a guy like that. And so we were at a table read and s someone came in and said, Conan, you have a phone call. And he, he left during the table read and did not come back. <laughs> and then after the wow. table read. It's we, opportunity knocking. Yeah, it was. It's opportunity <laughs> literally calling. And so he didn't come back from table read. And after table read, we went to his office, Bill and I did. And we opened a door and he was lying on a sofa. And he said, I got the job. So I think that we were the first people to all hear that it shaking, too. But that's, all that shaking the hands in the mall paid off. Yeah. Those guys said yeah. That. Then, so away went Conan. And of course, Fox was really, even though they couldn't interfere, they because I think because they couldn't interfere, it, they were not friendly to the Simpsons. Or to people on the staff, you'd think they'd be like, thank you for making us billions of dollars, but they weren't. They are really rather ingrateful. And so when Conan <laughs> left, they made him pay out the rest of his contract. Whoa. You'd think they'd go like, oh my God, Conan's a good person to be friendly to. Yeah. And he'll do something for us later on. But no, instead they were like, you owe us money. Then there was a void and we were sort of next in line. It was Futurama folks as well. Yeah. Oh, there's a good story from that. That was after we had left and our friend David Cohen who was a Simpsons writer, created Futurama with Matt. Mm. And again, when they created it, there was an understanding that like they wouldn't be able to give notes. And so there was a time during Futurama where an executive said, well, could we give you some notes? And Matt and David said, no, <laughs> no, you can't. And then the, they said, could we fax you some notes? And they said, no. And they said, could we fax you some notes? And you could just throw them out without looking. And, they, and, and Matt said, no. And so, so they were, they really, they weren't, again, that's what Futurama was brilliant because it was uninterfered with. Yeah. But also because of that, because they didn't have their fingers in it, they also didn't appreciate it. Yeah. And that's why it kept getting rescheduled. And it's also the, the head of Fox at the time was a, a 
dimwit who did, clearly didn't <laughs> like it and didn't thought like cartoon stuff for kids and like they didn't get it or appreciate it and so they kept rescheduling it and it just it kind of got screwed with because of that yeah. i suppose that that is the risk if someone isn't intimately involved with something it's very easy to take it for granted even though the bottom line that the checks keep coming in and it's doing very well because you haven't seen it being made you don't understand the diligence and care that's gone into it that you should trust these people because you're not right. invited into the room and we found a lot with developing ideas that very often it's a good idea to get someone from the channel or the network or whatever to come in and, and feel like they've got yeah. skill in the game so they don't dick you about so they then go this is our project yeah exactly and then the hard thing to do is to push them aside and say trust us we can do this yeah that's something that bill and i only learned after leaving the simpsons and it's like being kicked into the cold hard world when we left the simpsons we we're like oh boy we're it's we're great and we're going to create all these great sitcoms and you go into the real world and you under you have to learn that executives want to be involved yeah. and like and if find you a nice one right yeah <laughs> find nice intelligent executives who do exist and do involve them and let them help create the show and so they'll feel ownership and so yeah. they'll want to yeah, make the show and then it's also like then it's much again it's also if you find a nice intelligent executive it's much nicer to have friends and to be making a show with them but that's something we had we totally had to learn are you using the same kind of principles on disenchantment then yeah it's we very much and also because it's matt's show as well it just yeah. naturally comes from the simpsons and futurama half the writers come from simpsons and futurama but the way we always like to do things is like to bring new people into the fold and also young people. Because yeah. like we're all old farts now <laughs> from Simpsons and Future. I mean, we're 50 or older and you need young people and you need people. The interesting thing too, that now there are comedy writers who grew up with the Simpsons. So my yeah, I have a comedy theory that young writers are funnier than we can ever be because we grew up on cruddy 80s sitcoms <laughs> and little drips and drabs of these brilliant comedies but these kids kids today they grew up on shows like the simpsons so that's their base level of comedy and they've progressed even further yeah so I, standing on the shoulders of yellow giants yes yeah. of the yellow giants so i worked on the show gravity falls uh, for Great disney show. which i loved it's another show like i idolized i was a fan of before i worked on but i was like the oldest guy myself and one wow. other director who came from futurama we were like the old guys and everyone else was under 30 and i'm 50 i'm 52 now and so it was all these young people, and they grew up on The Simpsons, and they were just brilliant and warm again. But it's in that, their that, DNA. They, 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 yeah. this is, they don't know that's not possible. Right. They don't. And you could do anything, and the world is open. But it was, again, a very welcoming world. And so I hired a couple of young writers mm. from Gravity Falls. So anyway, so we had a very nice mix in the room. But again, it was the rules. And we would tell new people, too. It's like, never say no to an idea. There's never a bad idea. Don't shoot ideas down and anything goes and there's no bad pitches and all that sort of thing. Yeah. This, br this brings us very neatly to the idea of building a, a sort of welcoming family and warmth in comedy and also something that in the absence of having the Simpsons to grow up on that you grew up on that gave you that sense of comic possibility which yeah. is the thing you brought in today. Yes. Tell us what you brought That's, in. I brought in SCTV which is I think it's not very well known here not at all. but, no, not but at all. it's actually Canadian comedy but is kind of the most brilliant piece of comedy craftsmanship ever created tired of ordinary television don't touch that dial sctv is now on the air starring john candy joe flaherty eugene levy andrea martin rick 
Moranis, Catherine O'Hara, and Dave Thomas. Television like you've never seen it before. It only existed on American TV for like less than three years. Wow. It actually wow. ran, it started as a Canadian show by people in yeah. Second City comedy improv world, uh, Second City in Chicago. That's where it started, yeah, it, in the late and, 50s. Yeah. And then they opened a yeah. Toronto branch. That's right. It was, I think it was started by Del Close in the 50s. And it's kind of like the beatnik yeah. world. It was started as like a new type of comedy that hadn't really been seen. And so it started in Chicago, but there was a Toronto yeah. offshoot. And so the people in SCTV, I think like two-thirds of them were Canadian. And there were a couple of Americans like Harold Ramis, yeah. who went on to become a big director, who's a delightful writer. I never met him or anything. He, he died a couple of years ago, yeah. I think. It's another like sort of like comedy writing hero. And again, you could tell he was a nice guy. But he was just a, he was just a young guy. And there are these brilliant Canadian actors and writers. And it started out as just like a local Canadian show that was done under the auspices of Second City. And I think was sort of like they wanted to have their own little Saturday Night Live. It's really like kind of like a rinky-dink but hilarious little operation with these, these 10 people. Hello. Welcome to English for Beginners. I am your instructor, Lucille Hitzker, and today my guest is Perini Scleroso. Hello. Hello. Sit down. See you though. Sit down. See a Sit down. <laughs> now we will begin with a few simple phrases. No big if you see fray. No, you don't have to say that. No, would I say that? What's amazing, when you, the first thing that strikes you as a British person who won't be familiar with it, there's a burst of new comedy that's got Saturday Night Live in it, Monty Python in the UK, uh, and SCTV. And it sort of goes, well, that's where everyone you've ever heard of has come from. The people we know from it in the UK, because it wasn't shown over here as far as I know, the first time we ever saw them was in movies. And they yeah. weren't just in small movies. These were guys. Yeah. When, the, when all those people turned up and you went, who are these guys? And it is... Everyone from 1980s movies the great who movie. isn't it in SNL. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, it, it is like, who are these people? And they're all these brilliant Canadian people, mostly like like John Candy or Rick Moranis. Yeah. And Eugene all, Levy, Catherine Eugene Levy, Catherine O'Hara, all these people who are just Martin brilliant. Short. Yeah. And they all came from SCTV. Yeah. And some unsung people too, like Dave Thomas, who was the head writer during a period of it as well. But just these brilliant comedic minds. And again, like The Simpsons or other shows, it was a, it was like crafted comedy. Yeah. They were in their little cottage in Canada, allowed to do whatever they wanted. And they embraced that thing. It's like The Simpsons being in Springfield. This is entirely a show set in Melonville. Yes, in Melonville. You know? And in fact, this is an interesting thing too, because I was talking to Matt Groening about doing this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. And also about our influences. And he said that SCTV was a big influence on The Simpsons. And the fact that there's a world of Springfield, yeah. I think is in part actually directly influenced wow. by Melonville. Because if you haven't seen SCTV, which is probably a lot of people listening to this, is the premise is it's a broadcast day of this little TV station in this town called Mellonville. Yeah. So it's a sketch show with recurring characters, but it's not just sketches. There is an overarching theme, and you can glimpse through the sketches a wider world, a whole universe. Right, they're running behind. stories of all these characters, not just the people, the on-TV personalities, but the behind-the-scenes 
personalities and the people in Mellonville. And you can yeah. see like there's a direct line to Springfield from there. And so SCTV was a huge influence on myself and like Matt Groening and almost all the comedy writers we know from my generation. SCTV was this forbidden weird little thing that yeah. like hey have you seen this show because it was also it when it first came on in america i think it was 1981 and so i was still just like a, a sophomore in high school and i didn't know what it was so i was watching and it came on after saturday night live at 2 a.m but so like <laughs> the only people watching probably were weird teenagers you know yeah. and this thing comes on and when it first came on i didn't know what it was and I didn't like it because I was like, what? This is some weird channel? And I didn't understand that it was a parody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then when I realized it was a parody and it was doing all these other things, I was it was a mind-blowing moment because it was such brilliantly done comedy. And one thing that I love about SCTV that Saturday Night Live does not do is they have a total commitment to character yes. and to impersonations. Yes. And the thing that I hate about Saturday Night Live is there's always kind of like the winky winkiness of it. Yeah. Where like it's it's they're kind of half-assed parodies, but with SCTV, they got it would be down to the mannerisms of the people they're impersonating, but also excellent makeup. Even though it's on a rinky dink budget, excellent production yeah. for it. So it felt re- totally real. And they've got the even though the budget wasn't huge, they've got this lovely scope as well of saying, because this is a TV station, we can take the piss out for anything that will come out of your TV. And here's the host of the Halfwits, Alex Trebell. Arthur Andrew Liggett. And Arthur, what have you been up to since your last appearance on the show? Oh, I've... You know, I've... The usual. Like, uh, like what? Oh, just, um, the usual. The usual what? Uh, stuff. Good. Always a treat chatting with you, Arthur. And uh, and now let's meet your lucky partner. I met him already. I'm sorry? I met him already, Alex. I know him. We know, Arthur. I thought perhaps the studio audience would uh, like a chance to, uh, to meet him. Oh. So they do game show parodies. I was watching one this morning, which was a parody of an Ingmar Bergman film. Oh, they would do anything, and that's the cr- just wonderful. With the craziest thing two is people the whole- t- talking cod Swedish to each oh, other with, with subtitles oh. like he used to laugh at everything. Now he only laughs at the toilet. You know, <laughs> stuff like that. Catherine O'Hara is amazing. Catherine O'Hara is amazing. Everything. Oh my god, that's a, she was my first like TV crush. Well, well, we both, we the, both the, came away with the same thing. We as texted well. each other and went, "Is anyone? Are you in love with Catherine O'Hara now?" Because <laughs> I'd seen her in all the Christopher Guest movies and things, and it's just what her going she's a force of nature her and andrea martin yeah they're hilarious Natural clowns completely occupying their characters totally that's giving the, every her every Brooke shields is oh wonderful vicious on the brook Shields show with stimulating guests like kirk douglas Brooke, sit down sit up straight so um you're an actor right i guess i never heard of you well uh Brooke, uh, i made quite a few motion pictures Perhaps you've seen some of them. Of course she has. Spartacus, Paths of Glory, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Take those out, young lady. Every actor in SCTV has about 20 to 30 different, a huge range of celebrities that they would yeah. impersonate, that they'd get the mannerisms dead on. And also what's weird about SCTV, and I only learned when I started to really get into it, is they're the Canadian versions, which were done on a very small budget. And then when NBC hired them to do the show, they redid oh. some of their sketches oh. with a higher budget. So like when I was first watching SCTV, I was confused because they would throw in some of these earlier ones because when it was on NBC it was an hour and a half long 
That's a lot of. I mean, that's a lot of comedy. So like they threw in some of their older sketches, or they redid some. But one of the most brilliant ones, I think, the earlier version is called Half Wits, and the later version is called Night School High Q. And Eugene Levy, he does a really angry Alex Trebek, who gets really mad at the the idiotic contestants on the show, who are uh, uh, Catherine O'Hara plays a particularly annoying dumb person. But they're each there's an amazing moment. Andrew Martin going round and round and round on her chair in the background. Yeah, yeah. Catherine O'Hara. Every answer is, is it computers? <laughs> is it computers? And it's just like, how long have you been married? Oh, since the wedding. Who's the lucky guy? He's my husband. <laughs> Are you planning to have kids, children? No, I'm afraid not, Alex. I'm going to concentrate on my career. And what is that? Housewife and hopefully mother. Mm-hmm. Excellent choice. If I think uh, there's a bunch of sketches I would recommend to people to watch as like a, a gateway to SCTV, yeah, yeah. and that's definitely one of them because yeah. it, it encapsulates everything. Brilliantly, that's they brilliant. have they have curated. If you type SCTV into YouTube, the great thing is they've curated a channel, so yeah. you can watch. The exciting thing when you nominated this was I thought we'll never be able to see it, and actually it is now internationally available, sketch by sketch, and also people have uploaded whole episodes, so you can get into it. I found it thrilling watching this because I haven't in a long time watched something I haven't seen and been locked out in a way that I imagine if you're an American and you first watch Monty Python yeah. it takes an episode or two to get in and then you suddenly find you can't get enough of it and for the first half yeah. hour I thought oh well, it's those guys it's Rick Moranis it's John Candy it's Eugene yeah. Levy I like uh, Joe Flaherty I'm a big fan oh yeah but I'm not really getting this and then half an hour in I went I can't start watching this that's exactly it, it. I earned my way in Partly because it's a parody of a culture I didn't grow up in. So I imagine this is exactly what Monty Python looks like to an American. It is. And for us too, in America, it was like, it was a lot, it was filmed in, in Edmonton, Canada, <laughs> which I think is kind of in the middle of nowhere. And so they'd have these sketches. There's a brilliant sketch of Rick Moranis in a silvery Elvis suit singing Downtown by <laughs> Patula Clark and walking through downtown Edmonton. And so, and downtown Edmonton, at least they made it out to be like a wasteland. So he's walking, <laughs> singing downtown, and like there's like bums walking by and garbage blowing by, and it's just like the weirdest, brilliant thing. And so like I grew up with a picture of Canada being this weird kind of desolate place, yeah. but you also see like how like these comic minds were born, sort of growing up in places like this. If you watch a comedy from another culture. It becomes fascinating. You have to lean in even further to join the club, right? Yeah, and you have to you yeah. have to learn. You have to look into things. It's a similar the Simpsons, and it's similar to what Mad Magazine was to us growing up in the seventies. Is Mad Magazine would reference a lot of things in history or culture that yeah. I didn't know because it was from the fifties. Yeah, and so I looked them up. And the same with like Simpsons, we're learning the kids who grew up watching the Simpsons wouldn't know these things we were parodying or or Stanley Kubrick films yeah. like they had never seen that, but they'd see the parody of it. And the I- same with SCTV. There would be these show business because they brilliantly lampooned all these different aspects of show business that I didn't know about. Yeah, and like Sammy Maudlin. Sammy Maudlin was exactly oh. what I was getting to. A sort of like the the swinging sixties talk show host who's very sycophantic <laughs> to all the stars, and it's it's Eugene Levy doing this brilliant, like really awful, awful character, but it's delightful. The very first clip I watched is the Jerry Lewis on the Champs Elysees bit, Martin which Shaw. is oh. one of the most vicious fucking things I've ever seen yeah. done in comedy. It is so, it really goes for it. The funniest man in France, Paris Mack. Chapman should have been so funny. The Figaro. It's Martin Scorsese's Jerry Lewis live on the Champs Elysees. Yes, Lewis is back, and France has got him. And 
And that's the thing is that they are like vicious, but it's done in such good spirits that it's yeah. not me. It's like Saturday Night Live just seems mean sometimes, but it's not. Even though like they're really vicious put-ons of people. Look, when I do the cry, you do the cue. Cry cue. You like your job? Do it. He's a genius. Bravo, bravo. But their impressions of these celebrities were so dead on, and no one had done that at the time. No yeah. one was doing that. Saturday Night Live was half-assed, and they did. It's just a total commitment to comedy. Yeah. But they, yeah. they built this world, and some of that world is the real world. It's real celebrities. Some of it is people they've made up, all of which are facets of celebrity and television and showbiz culture and the culture we share. But this is a hate letter to culture, <laughs> and yet they're allowed to do it because you know they love it. Otherwise, why would they be wasting their time even knowing who these people are. Right. So they're, they're sort of, they've got that sort of love-hate relationship with these very famous people. That is something that definitely went into The Simpsons and is a different kind of relationship than, say, the South Park guys have got to it, which is much angrier and much bitier. But The Simpsons always seem to sort of right. love and it's, hate it. It's very much, calling Simpsons love-hate comedy, I think, is perfect because it's really, is that. And that's what SCTV did too. And it showed that you could make fun of anything. Yeah. And you might yeah. hate it yeah. or love it, but you... It's open to being mocked. And Sammy Morden is just a massive attack on that kind of self-satisfaction that those kind of presenters used to have, wasn't it? Yeah, and that's the thing. That's the case. Sammy Maudlin's show is something like I had not been exposed to talk shows or show business people like that. So yeah. that's my first exposure to show business psychophancy. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Well, I, I just want to say, Lola, you're too kind. Just too kind. Now, look, um, don't you have a lawsuit happening? I sure do. What's fascinating to me is, like, here are these heinous people. Even though it's just a, a comedy show, it was fascinating to me as well. It's one of the well. powerful things that comedy can do, I think, is act as a primer or a decoder yeah. or a key to culture. When you're younger or if it's a, a culture from another country, you can understand what British people think about the government by watching Monty Python. You can understand what Americans think about their president by watching The Simpsons. You can understand what these guys think about Canada and the culture that they come from by watching this program and then just reverse engineering where that anger came from. Yeah, yeah. and it's yeah, also yeah. like about show business. Yeah. So it like it taught us before we went into show business <laughs> a lot about show business. It's going to be full of mean fucks. Yeah, isn't it? yeah, and it comes down because like for example, they're talking about the building the whole world. There's the whole world of the station at SCTV yeah. in Mellonville and owned by this guy called Guy Caballero, played by yeah. Joe Flaherty in a wheelchair. In a guy who's a guy who's in a wheelchair but apparently can just walk but uses <laughs> yeah. the wheelchair to get sympathy. All these characters also they go insanely deep yeah. into these characters' yes. heads and worlds. That also had never been done on a show. This is the answer to a question I'd often wondered about with the stuff that Matt Groening created and, and The Simpsons which is there was a bit of it I didn't quite get where it had come from. That sense of density of whole world being built and also of characters like Krusty the Clown having a hinterland behind them that as a British person I watched it and went where's that come from? That was the one influence I couldn't spot. Ten minutes into SCTV I went That's, oh it's from yes. SCTV. And it's like it, it is from SCTV and Krusty the Clown is also based on there was a local talk show host in in Portland, Oregon that Matt used to, when he was a kid he used to watch the show yeah. but I think SCTV like you say was the gateway it said to us the writers in America like you can do this sort of thing go deeper go deeper create this whole world create full characters operating within this world that you'll just get glimpses of when you go in an episode yeah. but the whole time you get the feeling that their lives are actually going on yeah, it's a richness whilst, whilst you're not watching go 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 
Good day. How's it going? I'm Bob McKenzie. This is my brother, Doug. How's it going, A? We got two topics today, back bacon and long underwear. Like, they're different topics, right? Okay, first topic. Well, I don't know which one should be first. Which one should... Uh, go long underwear and then food as a reward. Okay. There's a fusion in this as well between the writing and the performance. That yes, again, it, you see in the best of animation where half of the jokes are on the shoulders of the performer and half the jokes are on the shoulders of the material. Yeah, in SCTV, about half the people were both writers and actors. Yeah, right. So yeah. you have like Dave Thomas and Eugene Levy, Enric Moranis, they were writing it as well as performing it. And Harold Ramis actually started as a writer on it. He performed briefly, but then ended up just becoming head writer. That synergy of, of writing and performing is quite hard to read. I found the first time I went, oh, what, am I watching the performer? Am I listening to the jokes? And then realizing that exactly as it is in a lot of really great, dense stuff, it's both. Yeah. I've got to follow yeah. both. One doesn't exist without the other. It's not a writer's sketch being read out by an actor. It is a totally consumed organism that you're watching. Yeah, it's coming from these people. These people created it and wrote it and are performing it. One of the other joyous things about you introducing us to this, because I don't think either of us had ever no. seen a CTV, is it's a ton more John Candy. <laughs> you know? And oh he, my God, it is so watchable. It, it? It's like a delicious buffet yeah. of comedy and stars that you may know or not. I wrote a list of my favorite sketches and I had to stop because <laughs> it, filled, it filled this... This, this little slip I have from the hotel. And it's a little, I had to start writing on the sides because there's so many things, not just that I love, but I realized like that my writing partner, Bill and I would constantly quote from, and then when I yeah, meet other yeah, people yeah, and people yeah. like Matt Groening, who also loved, were obsessive SCTV watchers, you can just quote a line from them and people know it yeah. and they can quote the rest of his sketch. The one I didn't like was a parody of a soap opera called Days of the Week. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. These are the days of the week. But then watching it again, you could go like, oh my God, like to see John Candy perform very seriously as a doctor saying, I'm afraid you're dreadfully ill. Because it, it was such a dead on impersonation. Yeah. yeah. It yeah. was so realistic. And that's another thing that The Simpsons took from it is the, the commitment to making parodies real yes you don't do it all winky winky and dismiss it in the middle of it you totally 100 percent commit to the parody and that's totally from sctv <laughs> look you you can't condone murder under any circumstances at least that's the way i see it good good that's just great you've been no help whatsoever now get the hell out i think uh, british audiences are far more familiar with snl it's the big brash loud famous yeah. brother of sctv there are immediate distinctions, and one of them is the depth of commitment to a parody, the amount that, that the performers in, in SNL are, are winking and being themselves still. Yeah. There's a very star-led thing with SNL. Yes, and that's the thing, and, and the great thing, a brilliant thing about SCTV is the actors and writers, they give themselves to the character. You yeah. no longer see the actor. Looking through the makeup to try and spot Joe Flaherty something. Yeah, oh my God. He did it in real American TV in the 70s. They had a cheesy show called The Battle of the Network Stars. They'd compete in athletic competitions. Oh my God, it's it's Linda Carter and the guy from Dukes of Hazard in a potato sack race or whatever. SCTV did a parody of Battle of the Network Stars, but it was all people from public TV. John Candy played Julia Child, It's who's the famous cooking show host. Yeah, yeah. Um, Joe Flaherty parodied Alistair Cook. Right. And it's yeah. also like, who 
watching TV at 2 a.m. in America even knew who Alistair Cook was. Yeah, yeah. Because he was a host of, a, at least in America, of his highfalutin history show. Yeah. Yeah. But I and but there's a boxing match between Julia Child <laughs> and and Mr. Rogers. And Mr. Rogers was just like really nice. And like Julia Child was really aggressive and would punch him and his, his dental work came out. But it's just like this crazy, weird, conceptual thing that regular mainstream American TV would never allow. And that's one of the aspects of SCTV that I think is great and that appeals especially to like comedy writers. It's it's this kind of like secret little thing. Yeah. It's like you had yeah. to be up at night at 2 a.m. and you saw this thing where as a America in the world loves SNL. This is this little thing that if you're a real comedy oh, fan, yeah. this secret little thing that you could know about. Is it's that, the Velvet that? Underground of... Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> that is, and it's just like that. It's like, oh my God, I want to know... I. I'm obsessive band. and I know about Maureen Tucker and I know all yeah. of this background. Let's do this. It's, part, it's a yeah. punky thing. Also, there's a feeling of if they've got away with this, maybe I could. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that was like, because like Saturday Night Live is, was okay. And it's like looking back at even the stuff that's regarded as classic in the first few years, eh, some of it's funny and some of it's not. But SCTV was the first thing where bells started ringing in my head that there's real comedy to be made and you can do things and write things that no one else is writing and you can make fun of things that no one else is making fun of and it can be really funny have you heard of rutland weekend television yes i have never seen it yeah, no you, won't, you won't see it because eric idle won't allow it to be released oh. for really silly reasons bloody silly reasons but it is it's this it is the tiniest county in Britain at the time was Rutland. This is the TV channel that's showing in Rutland, and it's all tiny, and it's the same thing. I think Rutland may have piloted 75, so yeah, maybe it's so maybe the, the same time. The yeah, it was in the, I think that's, it, what, that's what we were doing with Framley, wasn't it? Again, that's, got a lot and by the way, I have to say, well. Framley Examiner was to me like SCTV was. Framley Examiner was the SCTV of print oh, and ah. prose, where oh it opened... Oh, wow. This, I was like, this, and it remains the most brilliant thing I've ever read. It Again, bells started ringing in my head that like, oh my God, you can you can do this. It's like, a, it, that was the SCTV of prose. I'm, so so I'm, a bit, I'm a bit speechless. Thank you. That's, that's how I met, that's how, how I met, how I met you guys. Yeah, yeah, that's it's right. It's because yeah. I had read the Framley Examiner and when we were doing the show, Strange Hill High, I was like, can you find the people who wrote this? Because <laughs> they're brilliant and hilarious and, and know how to create a world. In which case, that, that puts us in an intriguing position because I think, everyone in this room has done something in the SAT, SCTV mode, which is to start doing something which is meant to just be a load of jokes or parodies, and then suddenly found themselves almost through the looking glass. You step in and suddenly you fall through and go, oh, God, this whole world is real. Now people mm. are asking me where these people live. Can you draw a map of it? Who works in that shop? I remember being asked for Framley once. Someone said, can you draw a map of it? So my brother Alex, who did a lot of the graphics with it with me, we drew a map for the end papers of one of the books, and we put the map on, in the end papers at the front, and the map in the end papers at the back was different. We'd moved all the villages around. Because the whole point was, there is no map. It exists in your mind. But people were still saying, I want to know what roads go between these Yeah, that's, villages. Yeah, it's very much like, Spring, like Springfield. It's the same totally. thing. It's like it doesn't... I think like, you may have stolen that joke from, from The Simpsons. There's no, but there's no map of Springfield because it's so amorphous. Even in The Simpsons' house is amorphous. But <laughs> changing size. Yeah, but going back to the sort of like a comedy, I think at its best, is like a little small cottage industry. When it's done the best, and it's your its own world, and like the the Simpsons 
we felt even though it was a hit, we were writing for ourselves because there was no real internet at the time. We yeah. were just writing to amuse ourselves and make if it made us laugh or we loved it, we would do it. And you get the feeling from SCTV that it's the same thing. Yeah, yeah. that it was I mean, this group though... of people who were who were like, we love this. Let's do it. It's making us laugh. Yeah, but and even though we regard the American system as being you know much bigger and glossier than ours, you know, because you've got these big writing rooms full of people. What the way you're describing the Simpsons is still it's just a bunch of people in a grotty little building on on a studio lot who are being left to their own devices, and that's, that's what, a cottage industry. Yeah, isn't it? what you get from that, which is I think is something very important. If we're talking about warmth, we've, we've been talking about that as an important value that gets underrated, especially in comedy, which can be vicious, savage, sarcastic. Th- those are in your toolkits. The scalpel's yeah. still there. But you, you're talking about something where you are trusting everybody to work together in a family situation that together this family will be bigger and better than the sum of its parts. That's right. And I think that everybody was at their heights. I feel the same way with The Simpsons, too. As, yeah. a, as a group, you are better than your individual parts. Yeah. And it's the, I, I think it's the same with SCTV is together they were brilliant and then they went some and did some brilliant films but also a lot of like cheesy movies and yeah. stuff I think they did for the money but when they were young and a group this is like the Beatles when you're young yeah. and have energy and as a group and you're feeding off your, each other there's a level of brilliance to be attained that you just couldn't on your own. These are I mean, as far as a, a, a person who didn't grow up with SCTV you look at that cast list and you go that's one hell of an all-star show. And you guys got John Candy and Rick Moranis. And, it's, and yet but, Martin Short, there are no stars. There's no star. No one is being a star. Right. No, no one's, And no true. one's acting like that's a star. True. And also, at the time, you didn't know who these people were. Yeah. Like, you didn't know John Candy. So you bought into their impersonations or the characters they're playing. Because yeah. I was just like, who are these people? These Some brilliant weirdos in Canada. So you totally commit, <laughs> as opposed to going like, I'm watching Dan Aykroyd yeah. play a character, you or Will the- Ferrell play a character. You, as a viewer, totally commit and are drawn into this weird little world. Yeah. That, and going back to the area of kindness and gentleness is you get the feeling that there is no ego involved. Yeah. That it was How a group can effort. there be no ego and, with this talent? And, and that's the thing about The Simpsons, and another rule that we are told is like, check your ego at the door. Because yeah. there's just no, have no ownership of ideas or jokes. It's all for the greater good of making people laugh. With animation, it's naturally a collaborative medium because until someone puts pen to paper, the writers have got nothing, the actors have got nothing. You can't have an ego in animation, I suppose. Right. And is it true? is, it's really, it really, we said, like, especially on Futurama, we said it's a family. And when, when Futurama was finally canceled again for the third time, <laughs> we, we said, like, we got to get this family back together. And yeah. part of Disenchantment was like, we, we hired nearly all the old Futurama cast. And it was like a feeling of getting the gang or the family back together and there always is that spirit and you have to be collaborative especially in animation because it's not just the writers it's the actors it's the animators it's the musicians it's just like so many different working parts that have to work well together and be happy in order to make a good show well that's an incredible thing to to look at and usually when someone brings an influence in you can trace a line through from the jokes or the structure or the rhythms something that you've learned about from listening under the covers or late at night and you go oh that that's in my dna this is really interesting because this seems to be an attitude that's come from it yeah which is a a thing i haven't thought about before this is a thing that showed not only a way to do jokes but a way to build the factory that would make more jokes like this yeah and it really 
I had never really thought about it either. But it's so much was it, I think it was as and as I'm just a teenager in the 80s watching this weird show at 2 a.m. But it's somehow sinking in that this is group of people in some weird place doing something together. <laughs> and like that was like that did percolate, I think, in a lot of our back of our brains of like this is a way to make comedy. And so a brilliant thing and I'm just thinking I, I'm not saying my brilliant my thought is brilliant <laughs> right but I'm saying I'm just okay there's no bad yeah, thoughts yeah, yeah. no bad thoughts but um but that the idea of being able to make something like that and in, in isolation because we and a lot of people on the Simpsons when it's the Simpsons writing staff was first hired Sam Simon, who was in charge of hiring all the writers, he didn't hire people from traditional sitcoms. Right. And he found people from these weird places. And like John Swartzwelder had started in advertising, but he had been working on Saturday Night Live along with John Vitti. But people on Saturday Night Live didn't like them because they were too weird or he didn't get a lot of sketches on. Hmm. And George Meyer had worked in comedy but had become disgusted with it and moved to Colorado to put out a little zine called Army Man, which had a lot of writers who now have become very well known. But again, all these outliers – yeah. From comedy. It's like the Magnificent put, Seven. Put to, yeah, yeah. I'm going to assemble this yeah. team of, of isolated specialists who together <laughs> will, will make something that will destroy traditional TV. But but it was the, the idea of outliers making something together is, I think, part of a key to brilliant comedy or one aspect of brilliant comedy because it was not traditional. It was not a tradition. Just like Simpsons is not a traditional sitcom and did not operate like one. And it's like, that's what I'm only sort of now putting together. You forget about the Simpsons that the the moment when Fox puts it up against Cosby, you go, what the yellow cartoon show up against Cosby. Right. And it's so (laughs) untrue. It's the, it's untraditional and that's SCTV too. And it can only, this is like where I'm trying to get the, the thinking that I'm, really enjoying is that is that it's only possible because of these weird setups these weird conditions of a group of weirdos who couldn't get hired somewhere else (laughs) together on like a a low budget or a small budget or in a small world making something that only possibly they love they don't know they're not thinking about the outside world but they suddenly have this little gift of like make a show do what you want and from that comes Brilliant comedy. Yeah, what yeah. an astonishing thing to take from something to look at something where, where the, uh, on paper, SCTV. You go well. The reason this will be remembered is because John Candy, Rick Moranis, Eugene Levy, Martin Short, Le- Catherine O'Hara, a list of people. You go well. Of course, that's its legacy. No, no, the legacy exists not in those people, but in something indefinable, a, a point that you triangulate from all of them. That's nothing to do with their stardom or their fame or their success afterwards. It's to do with follow their example. Yeah, and because yeah. at the time they were making it, none they weren't famous. Yeah, it felt like they were doing it because it made themselves laugh. What yeah. a beautiful thought! What a yeah. lovely place to end. I think that feels like spiritually, yeah. Yeah. where we should wrap this up and say thank you so much for bringing something we had never seen. Yeah. Sure, and that's I just encourage people to go to the YouTube channel yeah. and and just dive in, and you'll Wallow. spend hours. Drink it in. Yeah, spend some time with it. It's brilliant. Thank you so much, Josh. Thanks, Josh Thanks. Marge, my friend.
I haven't learned a thing. Oh.